Hello, Hope. So, psych, the video was earlier. You've seen the video already. <laughs> so you're just back here with me. Um, but I am so happy to be here with you all today. And I wanna, I wanna ask you, you have heard the expression to expect the unexpected, right? I mean, we've heard that. It's been around forever, expect the unexpected. But really, it makes very little sense. I mean, how can we expect something that we can't expect? I mean, sure, it's a heads up that you're gonna be surprised, and, and yet so often, if you're anything like me, despite the, despite the heads up, we're still surprised. I have to say, I feel like this describes what happens with God's people again and again. In so many different ways, God continued to tell his people, hey, you're going to be surprised. The Messiah is not going to be what you expect. Things aren't always going to go the way you expect. And yet, they were surprised. Many didn't recognize Jesus when he came. Now, I know, you may be asking, what on earth does this have to do with David? Because, you know, well, we're in a series on David. We've looked at David's flaws. We've looked at his friendships. We've looked at his days as a shepherd. But today, we're going to look at the many ways God points to Jesus through the life of David. There are many more obvious parallels, ones that we, with the benefit of Tons of years are able to look back and see. Things like their hometowns, both David and Jesus were born in Bethlehem. Their relationship with shepherds, David was a shepherd, and Jesus really understood and used the analogy of a shepherd when he described himself. He called himself the good shepherd, and he cared for, protected, and leads us, his followers, his sheep. They were both anointed. David was anointed by the Holy Spirit when the prophet Samuel anointed him as the next king of Israel. And when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him in a powerful, supernatural anointing. Wilderness. Both Jesus and David were intimately familiar with time in the wilderness. David spent many, many years hiding from the current king Saul in the wilderness, that time between when he was anointed king and when he actually stepped into power as king and ruler. After his baptism, Jesus too spent time in the wilderness, time alone, time where he wrestled with the devil before he started his ministry. And ultimately, both men triumphed over great evil. David eventually beginning the royal lineage of Israel and Jerusalem. And Jesus, Jesus was born into the line of David and promises that one day he will reign from the throne of David over not just Israel, but all of the earth. Now, like I said, we have thousands of years to compare and see how God foreshadowed Jesus' coming through David's life a benefit that the contemporaries of Jesus never had. But those religious rulers of Jesus' time, they knew the stories of David inside and out. And there were some key ways David could help them understand what it meant to perhaps expect the unexpected. 
So you see, David was the youngest of Jesse's sons, and when the prophet Samuel asked to meet Jesse's sons, because the Lord had told him that it would be from that line the next king was coming, Jesse brought his sons forward, all of them but David. One by one, the men came before Samuel, and Samuel would see them and think, wow, now this guy, he looks like a king, only to clearly hear God say, no, Samuel, not him. One by one, as Jesse's sons came forward, God made it clear to Samuel that while these young men outwardly looked like a king, God did not look with the eyes of man. He did not see as people saw, but instead he saw their hearts. And none of them were who God had chosen. Samuel had to ask Jesse again, dude, do you have any other sons? Because it's not any of these guys. And Jesse replied, well, there's one, but he's out tending sheep. God's choice in the next king of Israel was not even what the prophet Samuel expected. He was small, dirty, and rough around the edges. Likewise, no one expected the Messiah to arrive in a stable surrounded by animals, essentially waiting in a refugee camp for a census, or to then be raised by a carpenter both David and Jesus were unexpected kings. But for me, it's some of the relationships in David's life which foreshadow or, or maybe reflect Christ's character so clearly. We see his obedience to God and mercy when David has the opportunity to kill Saul, who has been relentlessly hunting him down. But instead, David recognizes it is not God's timing, and he offers grace and sets Saul free. But I think one of the stories that speaks most deeply to me is the story of Mephibosheth. Now, that's a mouthful, and while I am sure it will be very amusing to watch me continue to say Mephibosheth over and over again throughout the message, we're going to give him a nickname. So we're going to call him Fibs. Uh, you know, like Mr. Fibs, Fibs, yeah, anyway. Now, Jesus, nope, Fibs was Jonathan's son. We remember Jonathan, right? Pastor Rick introduced him to us. Jonathan was King Saul's son. Now we know Saul hates David. So you might expect Jonathan to hate David as well. But instead, Jonathan and David were best friends. In fact, that isn't even a good enough term because best friends we all know can come and go through seasons, but the Bible describes their friendship by saying they loved each other as they loved their own soul. They were blood brothers. Jonathan is the reason David escaped Saul as Saul was trying to kill him. They were tight. So much so that when the time came and Jonathan knew he had to get David out of the country and they were saying goodbye, they fell to the ground weeping. And they made a promise to each other. 
In 1 Samuel 20, 42, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left and Jonathan went back to town. This separation, it broke both of their hearts. But they knew if David stayed, Saul would certainly find a way to successfully kill David. So David flees and will spend the next 13 years in hiding. Now, this is a war-torn time. Countries are always at battle against each other. And toward the end of those 13 years, the nations are again at war. King Saul, Jonathan, and Jonathan's brothers were all battling the Philistines at Mount Gilboa. And at this battle, ultimately, all of them would die. When word of their death reaches back home where Phibs, Jonathan's son, is, the servant who has been watching him hears this and is terrified. She fears for the boy's life. She knows he is the only living relative of King Saul, the only one left in a line of succession. So she decides to flee. She takes the boy and runs from the country. Now, while she is making her escape some time during her travels, she drops the five-year-old boy and Phibs is in, injured in such a way that he will never walk again. Outside of the country, he is taken in by a family and he lives the next section of his life out in hiding as a refugee. So we find ourselves with Saul and his sons killed, which means David is now officially king. So he was anointed earlier, but he has actually taken control now. And with that honor comes the responsibility of uniting and defending the nations of Israel and Judea. David spends the next chunk of his life in battle. When peace finally descends upon the nation, he remembers his promise to Jonathan. I think it's like those times where you just have to keep going, right? You're on overdrive because you just have to get through. David had battle after battle. And finally, when peace descends, he is able to sit and mourn Jonathan and remember the promise they made to each other. So he seeks out some of Saul's old servants and he asks them if there's anyone that's still alive in Jonathan's line. He explains that he wants to honor them. Now, we have to put a pin in this for just a minute because you see the general response for a king who takes power that is out of the line of succession, which means it's not a son taking over for his father. The general response would be to seek out all of the relatives of the former king and kill them. 
anyone who might have a legitimate biological claim to the throne is a threat. They could possibly raise up supporters to overthrow the new king. So typically, a king would wipe them out. It's all very Game of Thrones minus the dragons. But David's response is far from typical. It's quite unexpected. David tracks down Phibs and orders he and his family brought back to him. Of course, Phibs is terrified. I mean, he comes before David and falls on his face before him. He's scared out of his mind. He doesn't know David. He has been hiding since he was five. He fully expects he and his family to be killed. But that isn't what happens. Instead, in 2 Samuel 9, 7, we read, Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Now, this is not at all what our friend Phibs is expecting. He was expecting death. Sure that he was doomed, as well as his family, he begged for pardon. And instead, what he receives is completely unexpected. Phibs is welcomed back and given all of Saul's land and servants. He has gone from being a fugitive in hiding to a highest-ranking nobleman. And not only that, we are told that he would eat with David for the rest of his life, like the king's son. Essentially, David adopts Phibs as his own. See, David understood firsthand what it meant to have a new beginning offered to you. He understood what it meant to be chosen and forgiven. In Psalm 103, 8 to 10, David writes, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our inequities. David was no stranger to sin or to grief. He knew what it was to be plucked from nothing and made into something. He knew it wasn't always easy along the way. What we see from David, this kind of Unmerited grace is unheard of. In a culture that lived eye for an eye, just sparing his life would have been radical. But King David took it further and treated him as his own son. I cannot think of a more perfect demonstration of what Christ does for us. Mephibosheth was broken, quite literally on the run, in hiding. He would have been considered an outcast by society. 
a man who couldn't walk with no money to his name, no family left to rely on. He was expecting to be killed, but instead is made new. He's given land, servants, means, and he's given a seat at the king's table. Welcome, accepted, and loved. Now, we know that when we look at the life of David, we saw this dirty young shepherd, but God saw a man after his own heart, a future king. And as David grew in his faithfulness to God, we saw the Holy Spirit do amazing things in and through him. Mephibosheth is just one of the many examples. It was not necessarily a straight path. We know that David lost his way at times. We know he was distracted. We know he fell to temptation. But no matter how far he would wander, his heart always belonged to God. So we in my house are an animal family. For better or for worse, our house is a zoo. Um, we have three dogs, two cats, two lizards, and a gaggle of fish. So it really, we should charge admission. But, um, but not long ago, our two of our dogs got out. So they, it was late at night, and the older dog was already up, put herself to bed. The younger two were outside. The gate had not been latched securely when we had had some HVAC guys out to the house earlier that day. And so around 11.30, quarter of 12, they made a break for it. So I woke up to my husband yelling, the dogs are out, at which point we all scramble out of bed and run, you know, outside. Quickly we find the larger dog, but our, our smaller dog, Lexi, is nowhere to be found. So this becomes an all-out search party at, you know, 12.30 at night. And so we're in all of our respective cars. My parents who live across the street are in their cars. We're driving all over the neighborhood, yelling for Lexi. Um, we've put up things on Facebook like, hey, sorry, neighbors, if we're waking you up, but if you see a dog in your backyard, can you call me? Um, looking everywhere for her. And, you know, periodically we will do a drive by the house just to see if she's turned back up or whatever. And, and about 1.30 in the morning, uh, my husband Kevin drives by one more time and he sees over on the stoop of my parents' house is Lexi. She brought herself home and is sitting waiting for someone to let her in. No matter how far she wanders, she tends to come home. I'd love to say this was the first time it had happened with her, but it was not. It was the first time in the middle of the night. Um, but she does always come home. David's home was with God. His heart was with God. And so as even though he wandered from time to time, he confessed his sins and he stood before God and asked God to forgive him and to make his path right. Keeping his promise to Jonathan was also keeping a promise that he made to God. Pursuing Mephibosheth and offering a place at his table a new life 
was a reflection for all that God had done for him. This is what Jesus offers us. He has taken us, the broken people that we are, and has given us a new life, one that is based on who he is rather than who we are. He has adopted us into his family and welcomes us to his table. There's nothing we have done to deserve this and nothing we can do to earn our way there. It is holy and purely a gift from him. So the question becomes, what will we do with this gift? How will we respond to the gift that we have been given? A gift of a new life, a gift to start again. The band is gonna come up and they're gonna play for us again in a moment. And while they're getting ready, I wanna reflect on this. You see, David's response was a life of service. We see him now as King David, but we cannot forget the years in the wilderness, his experience facing Goliath, the soul-wrenching agony surrounding his calculating attack on Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. He was no stranger to sin, no stranger to loneliness, no stranger to loss, and yet his response time and again was to cling to God. I don't know what you're facing right now. You may be at the precipice of something new or exciting, or you might feel lonely and abandoned. You may be facing a Goliath in your life, something so big you can't imagine a way through it. Or perhaps you're wrestling with a sin that has gripped your life with both hands. Whatever it is, we have a choice. How will we respond? Will we continue to rely on our own strength to try and find our own way? Or will we press into our relationship with Jesus, build time into our lives to sit at our Father's table, to learn from those ahead of us in their faith and time to reach out to those who are just beginning? Will we press on in following Jesus and perhaps even begin to expect the unexpected in our lives?